Are you proud of me, Corey? All right. Does everybody have a good Christmas? What a blessed time, huh? We had a great time Christmas Eve. Uh, hopefully many of you were able to be a part of that service with us. We had a lot, of, a lot of fun just celebrating the glory of the greatest gift ever given. <clears throat> Kathy and I, it's the first time we had a Christmas where we didn't have to go to like a hundred different family members. So I was celebrating. My Christmas was put my feet up and I didn't have to go nowhere. So because I actually did that on Christmas and I put my feet up and didn't go anywhere... I had to take Kathy somewhere the day after Christmas. That was a deal. So I took her to the Snake River Grill. I have discovered a secret in going to restaurants with my wife. In the past, I would sit down and we would open up the, the menu. And I would know... How many of you guys know what you want to eat like in 30 seconds or less when you open up a menu? So I open up that menu, bam, I know what I want. So I, I'm, I close up the menu. If I let Kathy look, she's going to look. She's going to change her mind at least four times. And if you ever went out to breakfast with her, you know. Then whatever she ordered that fourth time, that's not really it. Because whatever you got is going to look good. And she's going to say, well, that sounds kind of good. So we went to Snake River Grill. I didn't even give her a menu. I says, don't, I got this one for you, hon. Don't worry about it. So I went through and ordered, and this is what we had. This was a, a, a perfect family outing. I look forward to doing it again. I had alligator. Joe had frog legs, and Kathy had sturgeon. How, how can you go wrong? <laughs> it was really good. We had a neat time, great time as a family. Uh, uh, it was a wonderful Christmas, and I hope yours was, was as good as well. If you've got your Bibles with you, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to continue to go through uh, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And as we look at this letter, as we, as we, one of the encouraging things, I guess, as I look at Corinthians is simply that Paul's writing a letter to real people. I know it's real people because they got real issues, real problems, things going on. I don't know about all of you, but for me, I've got problems. I have problems in my family. I have problems at home. It's part of being alive. It's part of what it, it's all about. So we have issues. And Paul's writing to, to deal with those issues. And as we look at the, the church at Corinth, in a lot of ways we can see ourselves in issues that come up in our lives. And we get the Lord's direction. And what do you do about this situation? What do you do about that situation? He, he told us in the beginning, if you remember, that one of their struggles was in division. So he says there's no division in the body of Christ. There should be no division between us. And he said, how do we keep that division from happening? You keep the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. Rose again on the third day. That he set us free from our sin and we commit our lives to him. We keep him central. We don't get our eyes off on other things. We don't get our eyes off on, on other parts. We have freedom in worship to experience worship in a variety of ways. We have brothers and sisters that will experience worship today and uh, with hymnals and an organ out of a book. There's nothing wrong with that. We have other brothers that are going to experience worship in a different way, a little rowdier, some even rowdier than us. But the bottom line is none of that matters. It's not central. What's central? Jesus Christ. Keep Jesus Christ at the center. 
Then he went on in chapter 5 to talk to them about sexual immorality. There was sexual immorality within the church. And it ought not to be that way. And so he laid that out for us. And today, as we look, there's another issue. We have brothers in dispute among one another, settling their dispute in a, in a secular court of law. Here's what he says. Chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? He says, we are settling our disputes among the unrighteous. We're going there. What are are they, if we look at our courts today and we look at the judgments that they make, are they righteous judgments? Not very often. Most of the time they're unrighteous judgments. They're judgments that go directly against what God's word teaches So Paul's saying, why would you go to them to settle your disputes? Now in chapter 6, he's talking about disputes between brethren. He's not talking about criminal law. He's not talking about those issues. He's saying, you have ought against your brother and you're going to take him to court and sue him. And you ought to be able to settle these matters without going to court and without seeking the judgment of the unrighteous, but rather the judgment of the saints. Look what he says. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge in the smallest matters? Hey guys, the Bible declares that you and I, we're gonna, we're gonna administrate with Jesus Christ in His kingdom. A lot of people get confused about this. Let me try to give you a basic rundown. The next thing on the prophetic calendar that, that we are looking for is the rapture of the church. That God would call His church home, His bride home. Immediately following that, we have the tribulation period. Seven years, the final seven years, Jacob's, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, Daniel's 70th week. That seven year tribulation is going to take place at the end of which chapter 19 of Revelation tells us Jesus Christ will return with his saints. You and I return with him. Now, once we went to the Lord, once we're with him, Regardless as to your particular view, once we're with Christ, we are perfected. No longer do we struggle with sin. I don't even know what that's going to be like, but I'm sure looking forward to it. No longer will I have to struggle about what's right, what's wrong, how, what decisions that I... Hey, I will be right there. The Bible says that I'm going to know Jesus even as I am known. I'm going to understand even as He understands me. That's pretty good knowledge. So I look forward to that day. Jesus will set up his kingdom. The thousand year millennial reign of Christ. Who's going to be there? The Bible tells in Matthew 25 that there will be the judgment of the nations. The sheep and the goats. Those who have lived through the tribulation and come to the millennial age. At that judgment will either be ushered into the kingdom as those who have survived. Or they will be restricted out of the kingdom based on what they did for, for God's people during that period of time. So the kingdom age is going to be made up of those who survive and the nation of Israel. They will be in the kingdom. Jesus Christ will rule and reign and we will administrate with him. What are we going to do? I don't know. Whatever he tells me to do. Whatever he says. The good news is, you and I, we're done. You and I who have given our life to Jesus Christ prior to that point, there's no more test, there's no more fall, there's no more failure. We will be with Jesus forever. 
The Bible says at the end of a thousand years, during the thousand year reign, in fact, we're going to begin, begin to study Isaiah as we look at the scriptures uh, tonight. As we take a look at Isaiah, we're going to see that the, the Bible indicates during the kingdom age that if someone was to die at a hundred years old, they would say a baby had died. So life is going to be extended like it was back in Genesis. Perhaps people will live the whole thousand years. If you could imagine, I wonder how many children you could have if you could live that long and you felt good. <laughs> and your body wasn't rotten. And, and all, think about this. All of creation was perfect. Isaiah 11 tells us that the wolf will lie down with the lamb. That the lion will eat, oc- or will eat straw like the ox. That a child will play by the cobra's den. That the children, we won't have to be afraid of animals. We won't have to be afraid of any of that. Kids will just be out able to, to play, be free, not have to worry about the curse for Jesus will have removed the curse. The kingdom's going to be a time of perfection. But at the end of the thousand years, Satan is bound that entire thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, what happens? He's loosed for one season. Why? Because God is going to prove once and for all that mankind is not a product of his environment. What do you mean? Mankind will have lived a thousand years in perfect peace, in a perfect place, with, with everything right. Satan will be loosed, and in that one season that Satan is loosed, so many people will choose to follow him, the Bible says, you can't even number them. It puts a number on as many sands as there are in the seashore that will rebel against the righteous rule of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't include us. We're administrating with him. We're with him. And at that moment, the armies of the world, Satan leading them together, will come against uh, God's anointed Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And as they gather, it will all unravel. It will all unravel. The earth will pass away. And all that will be left is a great white throne. And all the living and the dead who have ever been upon the earth will have their moment before God. But that's a moment wherein they can only declare God's righteous judgment that they will be eternally separated from Him. Those who chose the Lord during the millennial reign will be with Him. And the Bible says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The old things will pass away and God will... Wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's how all these things come together in the bird's eye view of it all. Well, if we consider that, if we think about that, Paul says, listen, if you're going to be doing that with Jesus, are you serious that you can't settle a dispute with your brother? You have to run to a court to do it? You have to go see some some unrighteous judge, some secular organization that you have to pay them whatever you need to pay them so you can sue your brother? So that you can go to law against him? Look at 1 Corinthians 6.3. Do you not know that we shall judge the angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? That, that, that we're going to sit, you know that the angels, the Bible says angels are ministering spirits. They serve us. Some of us have had experiences with angels. One way or another, you know, you're out somewhere, doesn't seem like there's anybody around to help. All of a sudden, there's that, that man or woman who's able to, to help you out, able to get you through. And then, 
they go off in the distance and you never hear from them again. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13 that we should be careful to entertain strangers. For some have entertained angels unaware. The Bible says that we'll sit and administrate over, over the angels. If you're going to do that in the future, when we're perfected, now you can't judge between one another? What is going on? Paul is going to get down to the point. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Do you know that I heard about a church that split, and the church split happened, and the church was fighting over which half of the split got the building. So they went to court. They went to, to, to a judge, secular judge, he heard both sides of the argument. He awarded the building to, to one part of the body. The other part went somewhere else. Later on, the judge was curious. I mean, what could cause such a thing that the church would split in anger, come to a secular judge to have these, these things worked out? You know what the bottom line was? You know what started it all? An elder got a smaller portion of meat at a potluck. That was the beginning. And it ended in a church split. I grew up in a church that split. Do you know why the church split? Pastor painted the grand piano. He was a musician, was a beautiful grand piano. It was beautiful after he was done. But they didn't like that. How could he do such a thing? Do you really mean that you can't settle those things Apart from that, that that is such a big deal that it's going to tear the body of Christ, that you're going to run to, to a, an unrighteous source, a source that you and I, when we look at the news and we hear of the decisions that they're passing, that, that it, it, it should be unconstitutional to say, in God we trust for a nation founded on the word of God? Really? We're going to go to them to settle our disputes between one another. No, that's what Paul is, Paul is calling us that we're, we're called to so much more than that. I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. You mean there's not one person, not one person you can go to. Folks, if we've got a problem between brethren, Jesus told us how to deal with it, didn't he? He told us in the book of Matthew, if you have ought against your brother, go to your brother. He didn't say go gather for yourself 15 buddies and let them all tell you that you're right and then go talk to them. He didn't say go to the elders, go to the... He said go to your brother. Go to the one to whom you have an issue. And if he won't hear you, then bring two or three so that there is a witness to the fact that, that they're being unreasonable. And if he still won't hear you, Bring it before the, the elders of the church for church discipline. If he still won't hear you, then Jesus said, treat him as an unbeliever. You've done everything you could do to treat him like a brother, to treat her like a sister. Now you're under no obligation to treat them differently other than to consider their needs before your own. Can I take a brother to court? Can I sue someone and have their best interest in mind? Can I sue someone else and think, I, I'm doing this for their good? Probably not. I'm probably suing them for my good. 
This is what Paul's laying out. We ought to be able to deal with these matters within the body, within the church. Look as he goes on. But brother in verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? That's probably not a verse you have on your fridge. (laughs) Right? It's probably not something that I read every day. Okay, why don't I let myself be wrong? What's he saying? What's he indicating here? He's saying it's better for you to have been ripped off and cheated than for you to sue your brother. It's better for you to, to lose than to take a matter before the world. And we've all seen it, haven't we? We've all seen churches on the front page of newspapers. This church suing that church. This pastor fighting with that pastor. The Bible is very clear. You ought to be wronged first. Let it happen. Let yourself be cheated. That's not part of our nature, is it? No, it's not part of our nature. It's been said that, I heard a story, a a little boy about five years old had a little sister about two years old. Those of you who have experienced such things will recognize this story. And they're, they're playing in the other room and pretty soon mama hears a scream. Ah! She goes running in and the five-year-old's kind of crying and he says, she pulled my hair. And so mom said, honey, she's two years old. She doesn't know she's pulling your hair. She doesn't know it hurts. Don't worry about it. You'll be okay. Big five-year-old boy. You can handle it. So mama walks out the room. Then pretty soon she hears it again. Ah! She goes back in. This time the little girl's crying. So mama comes in and says, what happened? What would you do? He said, now she knows it hurts. <laughs> Isn't that the way our attitude is? Hey, you wrong me, I wrong you. Do unto others first. Isn't that the, the golden rule? But you see, the Lord lays out something more for us, doesn't he? Doesn't he require something more of us? He says here, ought you rather not to accept the wrong? Accept it. That goes against our nature. Goes against mine too. But nonetheless, that's God's word, God's judgment. Before you take a brother to court, you got to let it go. You do all you can do. But brother ought not sue brother on the front pages of the newspaper demanding our rights. Look what he says next. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. You do these things to your brethren. We're doing these things. The Bible tells us how our attitude ought to be. In fact, in the Old Testament, you remember that little kid who killed the giant? His name was David. Had the sling, you know, pretty good at throwing things, wasn't he? Have you ever tried to use a sling? I went to Israel one time with Pastor Gerald. And we went down into that valley where David slew Goliath. And some crazy person gave Pastor Gerald a sling. (laughs) What? I'm getting back on a bus. You ever seen a guy from Kansas use a sling? Oh, Lord have mercy. So he picks up his rock. And he's going to, 
And of course, you know, since I'm, I'm his second, I get to run the camera. Jackie, film. I'm going to throw something. Oh, Lord. I just know I'm going to get hit in the side of the head with his rock. He's swinging, swinging that sling, and he lets go of one of the strings, and a rock fell out about five minutes earlier than all that. So he just flung an empty. He, he wasn't as good as David, but David was good, right? David nailed Goliath right between the eyes. The Lord had his hand and his anointing upon him, and Goliath went down. Later on, David ends up in the court of Saul, doesn't he? And in Saul's court, the Bible says an evil spirit was, was working and just drilling Saul. And one day Saul got so frustrated. Remember, he would ask for someone to come play music. And when David played the music, that evil spirit would subside and Saul could relax. You remember? But one day Saul got mad at David, didn't he? And he picked up a spear and he threw it at him and stuck it in the wall right by his head. And what did David do? Did he reach over, grab that spear, and say, I'll show you how to use this thing? Remember, they sang a song. Saul killed his thousands, but David what? Tens of thousands. What did David do? He just left. In all the time that God had anointed David for kingship, in all that time, did David ever come to Saul and demand his throne? Did he ever come to Saul and demand his rights? No, rather he spent 10 years living in caves, being hunted by the one whom God said he was to replace. Why? Because David said what? I will not touch God's anointed. He said, Saul, my brother. I'm not going to go to war against Saul. If God wants this to happen, is he able to do it? If God wants you to experience justice in a situation where a brother or sister in the body has wronged you, is he able to accomplish that? So the bottom line isn't whether or not you are going to get what's right. The bottom line is, are you willing to trust God for it? Are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to set aside your rights and trust the Lord? David did. And truly, there is one greater than David, and he did it also. Who was being reviled, reviled not against them. Who gave his cheeks to those who plucked out his beard and gave his back to those who beat him. In the scriptures, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, what does it say? Let the mind of Christ dwell in you. Let the mind, first it's a, it's a work of our will. We have to decide we're going to let the mind of Christ. And then that word dwell means be at home permanently in you. Let the mind of Christ be at home in you. Wasn't that Jesus' attitude? When he was wronged, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. We ought to let these things go, not let them fester, not let let them tear, not let them rip, not let them divide the body of Christ. For we've already talked about it. The body of Christ is torn. Who bleeds? 
Jesus does. And did Jesus come for his rights? Did Jesus come to earth to demand his rights? No, Jesus came to earth to get our wrongs. Not for his rights. He came for our wrongs. For he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So when you have ought against your brother, that should be the attitude of our heart. An attitude of restoration. An attitude that says, I want to see my brother able to stand and a willingness to say, if that means he's got to step up on me, so be it. Let him, in Philippians chapter 2, not look out for his own interests, but the interests of others. Not to just be focused on me. We live in a me society. You know that? We live in a me world. You turn on TV. I don't care what you watch. I don't care what you see. It's all about me. What do I want? What do I need? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? That's what it is. Our whole entire world is like that. Jesus goes against that. In being a totally other-centered. Totally others-focused. Scripture goes on and he, he indicates to us. Well, before we go on, listen, I want you to consider one other thing. That when we think about those who demand their rights, you cannot separate yourself from one particular church that Jesus wrote a letter to. The seventh of seven letters Jesus wrote to the church in Revelation was to a church called Laodicea. Laodicea means the people's rights. What marked Laodicea? Laodicea thought they had it all, thought they had everything. But what did Jesus say? You're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And Jesus said to that church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It wasn't even inside. If you open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. We don't want to be a people that's mark is, I want to follow the example of the church of Laodicea. Nobody reads the seven letters to the seven churches and says, that's the group I want to be. But if we're clamoring for our rights, that's the group we're in. We want to be those who are following Jesus. What did Jesus say? If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. But well, that's the hardest thing we ever had to do, isn't it? And we, I don't even have to think about being selfish. Do you know that? I don't have to sit there and go, okay, I'm going to be selfish now. It just happens. It just comes oozing out of my pores. It's in there. I have got to rather make an effort to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be like that. It's easy. If I go into the kitchen and I look at the pie of apple pie that Kathy made for Christmas and there's one piece left, it's not hard for me to snatch that up, put it on a plate, go hide in another room and eat it. I don't even have to think about it. To the victor goes the spoils. I was first. Woohoo! It comes natural, but God calls us to the supernatural, doesn't he? God calls us to be more than what we are. In verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, 
nor drunkards or revilers nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. What's his point? What's his purpose? These are the people you're going to law and having judge over you. I mean, basically, the litany that he lays out there is just the world. And what's he say in the next verse? And such were some of you. Listen, when we look at this list, and a lot of people want to take this list and use it to beat people with, the bottom line of this list is, I've always said in disciplining my kids, when I, when I lay out discipline for my kids, I, it's just going to be like this. If you do this, this is what happens. I'm not mad. I don't hate you. I'm not angry. I'm just telling you, if you do this, this is what happens. Well, in essence, it's what the Lord's laying out for us. And as we take a look at this, this verse, he's not saying if you've ever done these things, because obviously many of those in Corinth had. Some of them were still doing some of those things. What is the point then? Folks, in order to repent, we have to be able to face God and say, He's right, I'm wrong. But if I'm holding on to my rights... I have the right to do whatever I want to do. I have the right to be whatever I was born like. Folks, what are you saying? We were born sinners. You want to hold on to that? I was born in sin. Period. I was born in sin. It's Jesus Christ that makes me alive. I don't want to hold on to that stuff. I don't want to hold on to those rights. And as we look at this thing, folks, there's nobody God doesn't nail. For example, covetous. How do you tell if someone's coveting? You can see it. Do they get a green glow around them when they're walking down the road? No. Where's covetousness take place? In a heart. Isn't that what Jesus said when he taught on adultery or lust? Where did that sin take place? In action or in the heart? When we study the book of Exodus, we go through the Ten Commandments. Where do they take place? In a heart. It's in the heart. And if we're holding on to these things, if we're holding on and we're saying fornicators, anyone who has any sex outside of of God's ordained definition of marriage between a man and a woman, anything else is fornication, period. Oh yeah, but you know, this is the 21st century. Is it? Or the 22nd? 21st? Who knows? Nobody knows? I don't know. Sounded good. The point is, Well, nowadays, I mean, what's the big deal? Everybody's doing it. But that don't make it right. It don't make it right. If I can't look at my life, if that's what marks my life, and say, you know what, God? You're right. This is wrong. This is sin. When I, if I can declare that to the Lord, turn from it and face Him, it doesn't mean I'll never fall. It doesn't mean I'll never make, make a mistake. It doesn't mean I'll never mess up. It means I have repented. I have declared that God is right. I was wrong and I want to move toward Him. And every once in a while, I'll trip and fall. And it's the same all the way through the list. Folks, church has done a disservice. Church has done a disservice to certain people, elements that we look at and think, oh my gosh, this is the most horrible sin ever. It's, it's sin. It's sin. But it's no different than mine or yours or anyone else's. The point is, are you going to hold on to your sin and demand it as your right? Or are you going to let it go? 
We want to let it go. And the point that Paul's making here is, why do you want to go to them and have them judge? They're not going to judge you by the word of God. How can you do righteous judgment apart from God's word? How? How can there be righteous? How can we follow God's will apart from the word of God? How can we do it? It can't be done. We can't do what God is calling us to do. But look, he says in in verse 11, but such were some of you. This is what we were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We've been cleansed. The Scripture declares to us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What, how much unrighteousness is all? What? You guys could be regular Greek students. All means all. Everything. All unrighteousness. We confess. We repent. We declare God is right and I am wrong. We move toward Him. We're not holding on to our sin. We've been sanctified. Jesus said in John chapter 17, And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Sanctified. That's the work of cleansing in our life. How are our lives cleansed? By putting in God's truth. By pouring in the Word. You pour in the Word and it washes out the junk. Just like the coffee pot I make every morning. I get up, I go to the coffee pot, and it always has like that much coffee in the bottom. If I take that coffee pot and I put it under the faucet and turn the faucet on, and I go to grinding coffee and getting other things ready. Eventually the water in the pot is going to be clean. I may have used 300 gallons to get it that way. But doesn't all that clean water wash out all the junk? Jesus said you're sanctified by the truth. John chapter 13. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And he said that, that now you are clean by what? The words that I have spoken to you. The word of God cleans us. If we set God's word in our, in our house somewhere and we forget about it, it's not doing its job. It don't, it does, it's not like the miracle cleaner. It's not like the sham wow. It's not going to jump up off a table, do circles around you while you're sleeping and make you clean. You actually have to open it up. And not just read it, you have to ingest it. can't just look at the words. You've got to eat them. You've got to pour them into your life. In Hebrews 10, it says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That offering that Jesus Christ made, the perfect sacrifice, He makes us clean. So we are both sanctified and being sanctified. One day in the presence of Christ, we'll be perfected. That day hasn't happened yet, so we're still going through the process of being cleansed. So we need to read the Word. We need to make the word a part of our lives. We need to confess our sins so that we can be washed and cleansed. And then he says, you've been justified. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is justification? It means to be made just as if I never did it. We're justified in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are justified. For we are each just men or women made perfect in Christ Jesus. 
That's justification. So listen, Paul's saying to these guys, hey, you were some of these things. Some of these things apply to you, but they don't mark you. They don't define you anymore. And if you look at this list and you say, no, this is what I want to define me, then you're in a dangerous place. Because God's Word says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? God's not mad. God don't hate you. God just says, if you do this, this happens. It's your choice. You're free to choose the direction that you will move. And so verse 12 says, Well, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. We have freedom in Christ, but it's not, freedom's not a license. We're free. And we get to choose. And not everything we choose is good, is it? But you will always have the freedom to choose. But it doesn't change the truth of what's going on. If you choose to live your life according to sin and to make sin your master, the wages of sin is death. It's not God's judgment. It's what sin does. For example, we, if I was to tell you, shockingly, say in the 20s and 30s, if you smoke cigarettes, you'll get cancer. Oh, don't judge me, brother. You can't tell me that, 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 that what I'm doing is, you can't, man, that's just wrong. You can't be like, you're just putting, pouring your judgment out on me. Well, we don't feel that way now, do we? If I see someone smoking now, I say, well, you're just not very bright. Because <laughs> is it, I mean, dude, seriously, is it a shock? Do we turn on the news and we hear that smoking causes cancer? Does that shock us? We see it. It's, it is just plain truth, right? If I do A, B is likely to happen. It will get me sooner or later. It'll get me. It's no different with sin. I have freedom in Christ. I'm not bound by the law. No, I'm not bound by the law. I'm, I'm bound, hopefully, by the law of love. And love always does more than the law. The point is, I get free, I'm free to choose. But if I choose this, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to take place. Recently uh, became involved with a, a family that's going through a lot of hurt and pain and, and uh, difficult issues happening in their lives because... Uh, uh, husband and wife, uh, the husband was living a lie uh, the whole time that they were married. He was dabbling in sin. He was uh, choosing to, to try to do both, both live in sin and try to put on the front that he's a good man, good husband. And for the last 10 years, he had been having homosexual affairs and being married to his wife. His wife now has a four or five month old baby and he has AIDS. The husband knew that he had an affair with a man who had AIDS. He knew he contracted it and he brought it home anyway and continued to pretend. Why? Because he's horrible? But before you think about that, take a long look in the mirror. 
Because he's just like us. Sin kills. Period. I don't care what sin you put in it. Sin kills. And if you choose to say, I'm going to live my life in sin, it's going to destroy. Paul says, I have liberty in Christ. But I'm not going to allow sin to control my life. I'm not going to use it as a license for sin. Use it as a license for liberty. I'm free to make any choice I want. I can choose to live my life for Jesus Christ. Can I? I can choose to give myself to Him utterly, completely, totally committed, totally sold out. Can I choose that? Sure. We have the freedom to choose. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. For we are under a greater law than the law of Moses. We are under the law of love. We're under, you know, Joseph, my youngest son, is autistic. Many of you guys have seen him. If you go out here and try to have a donut, I promise you're going to see him. He'll be the one that tried to knock you over to get to the donuts. And then later on, he'll be the run running back and forth, pacing in the room, acting like there's no other people in the room. Because he doesn't see nobody else. He's the only one in his little world. But you know what? All the time he was growing up, all the times that he never went to sleep at night, all the times that he was still screaming at the top of his lungs at four in the morning in one of the kids' rooms when the kids roomed with him, All the different things that we went through with him. All the different struggles. I never one time had to tell my sons to love their brother. Because love always does more than what's required. They did it because they loved them. And that's what Paul's laying out for you and me. You got a problem with your brother. Don't run to this court. Don't, Don't go to the world with it. Settle your dispute. Settle it here. Settle it right. Let the word of God judge. And then submit yourself to the authority of God's word. And that's what God's word says and that's what it is. Don't hang on to your right. Don't hang on to say, this is my right, by golly. Don't do that. Let it go. Be like Christ. Rather let yourself be wronged. Rather let let lose. You can be right and alone, or you can let it go and stand with Christ. And that's where we want to stand. That's what we want to do. That's who we want to be. He says in verse 13, for food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy both it and them. And the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. There was a saying in Corinth, foods for the body or foods for the stomach the stomachs for food. So I'm going to eat whatever I want. That's what they use, that saying they use to justify the sexual appetites of their body. Well, if I feel like I want this or I want that, by golly, I should feed it. It's a desire. Really? Because that, that doesn't work in any other part of our life. The Lord says, no, that's not what it's all about. Your body is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. You, we, we run off and we chase all these things that we think are going to satisfy. They don't satisfy. 
There's no satiation in the world. There is only satisfaction in Christ Jesus. It's only in a right relationship with Him. If you're having a relationship with Christ and you're not satisfied, you're not having a relationship with Christ. You need to rightly apply the principles of God's Word into your life. Make that. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going. I'm not going to give my body whatever my body wants. Joseph, if I gave Joseph whatever his body wants, he would only eat French fries. That's it. That's the only thing. For years, when when we first got the diagnosis of, of autism, you know how we had to get him to eat other food? It's okay to tell them now, right? They can't turn us into CPS. <laughs> Joe would not eat. If he didn't like how it looked, how it touched, how it felt, he wouldn't eat it. So dad got this job. I would go behind Joe and I would take a piece of whatever it was we were trying to get him to try. And I put it in his mouth and I'd close his mouth and I'd hold it closed. And he'd kick and scream. Oh, no. I'm not going to. And then he would finally chew it or swallow it. And then he'd go, oh, okay. And then he'd eat it. (laughs) And that's how we had to. He would even do that with Captain Crunch. So it did. It wasn't like we were trying to give him broccoli. You know me. (laughs) Uh, I'm not not trying to force feed him vegetables. (laughs) But if I just let him have whatever he wants. Folks, if we just let our kids do whatever they want, they grow up to be sociopaths, psychopaths. We're supposed to give them guidelines. So I'm supposed to just feed my body, my flesh, whatever it wants? We talked about it last week. A lot of people want to proclaim that I was born like this. I was born in this sin, so I have the right to to do this. No, I was born in sin too. I don't have the right to practice it. The Bible calls me to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. To lay that stuff aside and get after Jesus, to put it out of my life and say, no, I want to do what God's calling me to do. I want to live for him. I want the mind of Christ. My body is made for him. To praise the Lord, to come before the Lord and and into his courts with praises, with thanksgiving, to lay myself at his feet. No greater moment will happen in history. No greater moment than that moment you individually spend face to face with God. In that moment, you will understand what it was all about and what it was all for. And the Bible says no one will be disappointed. No one will say, if I knew this was all there was to it, I would have quit a long time ago. No, the Bible says, no one will be ashamed in that moment. Looking in their maker's eyes, seeing the love, knowing that no matter what I did and no matter how I failed, he still loved me. And all I'm required to do is trust him and believe him and put my faith in him. It says in verse 14, so God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are member of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become echad, one flesh, unified. 
An attitude of of unity, come together, melded together. Do you realize that there's more that takes place in the physical act of love than what meets the eye? The Bible says that you become one, there's a joining. And then the Bible says when you take them apart, the only way to take them apart is to tear. So you're leaving pieces behind. You're leaving pieces behind. And, and the Lord says, now you guys there at Corinth who are saying that you should just feed these attitudes of your, of your flesh, do whatever your flesh is calling you to do. Don't you realize when you go out and walk in sin, you're joining the Lord to that? You're bringing him along with you? There's no stay here like in the skits. Lord, just wait here. Stay out. No, God comes with me in whatever darkness I walk in. He's with me because he said, Lo, I will never leave you or forsake you. So I bring him. I want to present my body to him. I don't want to present it to feed the, the attitudes of my flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We got choices to make, right? I can rather focus on that. Being joined to the Lord, drawing near Him. Let God be everything that I need. Instead of trying to attach myself to any number of other sins around me, I want to focus on that. I want to focus on Him. I want Him ruling and reigning. Complete commitment. Not just words, but reality. So he says in verse 18, Then flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality... Sins against his own body. Flee sexual immorality. Like Joseph. Remember him? Joseph. He was a hot teenager. And he was wanted by the boss's wife. And she'd have been willing to give him whatever he wanted if he would just lay with her. And he ran. And because he ran, only good things happened to him, right? Oh no, he went to prison. He went to prison for something he didn't do. Didn't he hold on to his rights? Fight to the bitter end? Or did he submit himself to the Lord? And the Lord, didn't the Lord bring him up? If you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, what does the scripture say? He will lift you up. Am I supposed to lift myself up? No. I'm supposed to allow God to do it. I'm supposed to present myself to Him. Trust Him. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Now this time when He says your body is a temple, He's talking about you individually. Last time we read it, earlier in Corinthians, He was talking about the body of the church corporately. We corporately are the, are the temple of God, but also me individually. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? You don't belong to you. You were bought with a price. If there's something I need in my life other than what God has already done for me, I'm missing the point. For God has already given you everything He had in His Son. He has already given us everything we need. But Lord, I need another Harley. No, 
All I need is Jesus. All I need is Him. All you need is Him. And don't you know, your body is a temple. Do you realize what that means? Because in the Old Testament, God would say to the priests, I will meet you there in the holy place. In that holy of holies between the cherubim, there I will meet with you. And here he's saying, that's your body. Your body is the naos, the holy place. And God's going to meet you in that place and share with you in that place. Speak to you in that place. He's going to talk. He's going to share. He's going to reveal. So we need to seek Him. We need to reach out for Him. Present ourselves to Him. For there is where satiation lies. For we were bought with a price. For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The Lord paid the price that we could have a relationship with Him. So glorify the Lord. So what's that mean? That means if I got a problem with my brother, I want to glorify the Lord. The Lord says He's glorified if I'm willing to have His mind, the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ that doesn't exalt self, but is other-centered. And if that means I get wronged, I get wrong. Who is he talking about? Brother to brother. Believers. Arguing about little stupid things within the body. Well, what about, what about with sin in my life? Should I just feed my body whatever sin it wants? No. I want to present my body to Christ. He bought it. He bought it when it wasn't worth nothing. No value. He bought my life when it was a pile of ashes. And every time I clean out my fireplace, I'm reminded about what my life is without Christ. It's just a bucket of ashes. I can't make nothing out of it. And every time I try to do something in it, I just make a mess. But in Isaiah, the Lord declares, the work of the Messiah is to give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The God is in the business of redeeming and making my life make sense. So to the church at Corinth, submit yourself to the Lord, Paul saying. Stop fighting amongst yourselves. Stop playing around with sin. Submit yourself to Him. Submit yourself to Him and allow God to do a perfect work in your life. Because folks, every one of us are more then we appear. You have so much value to God that He would send His only begotten Son for you. Just you. That He would pay every price imaginable so that He could pave the way. The way is open for you to have a relationship with Him. All we have to do is reach out and take it. To turn away from our sin... And hold on to Him for all we're worth. Folks, when the storm hits and the wind's blowing, what do you want to be holding on to? I want to be holding on to the rock. I want to be holding on to Jesus Christ. Because He won't be moved. He's not going to shake. He's not going to shudder. He won't fall. So I'll cling to Him for all I'm worth. And in the end, we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. (laughs) 
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to come before you, Lord. We thank you that we can stand in this place, Lord Jesus, and and just seek your Spirit's guiding and leading. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, Lord. And we pray, God, as we look at your word, that we would allow your word to dictate who we are, not who we are to dictate what your word says. Father, that we would submit ourselves to to an understanding that your word can guide and lead today just as easily as it did then. Father, we want to submit ourselves to that word. Lord, let us not go to war against one another, but let us rather seek for peace. Father, let us look rather not out for my needs, but for the needs of others. Let us not be focused on self, Let us be focused on others. Father, let us not get caught up in the trap of me-itis, but lay that all aside, Lord God, and just look for you to follow your leading and your guiding, to allow your Spirit to work in our lives, to present our bodies as tools of righteousness, to be utilized by your Spirit as you see fit. That it's not about us. It's not about me. It's all about you. So Lord, help us truly, not just to say with words, to let the mind of Christ be in us. But let us rather make that commitment. I want to be like Jesus. I know I'm not. I know I'm not perfect, but neither will I use as an excuse not to walk not to try, not to step, not to be what God is calling me to be. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would move through our body and that You, Father God, would do that perfect work, that we would understand the truth of of being with You, of hearing Your voice, hearing Your voice in the holy place. As our bodies are that temple, as we present our bodies to You, Father, You'll meet us there. Lord God, let us be willing to be still and know that you are God. I don't have to know how everything works. I just need to know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded, Lord, that you are able to keep us to that day. So we place ourselves in your capable hands and ask that you would do your perfect work in us and through us that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to go ahead and close in worship. We invite you to stay and fellowship with us just outside. There will be some donuts. Also, we're going to have the prayer counselors come on up. If there's anybody here this morning that would like to come up for prayer, we want to invite you to come on up. There will be folks up front to pray with you. God bless you and go in peace.